Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. Herpes affects 80% of the global population, but there are two of the herpes simplex viruses that hold immense shame and stigma, herpes simplex virus 1 and herpes simplex virus 2. I've actually lost count of how many clients I've supported following a herpes diagnosis. And I know that so many people are going to benefit from the episode I've got to share with you today. In today's episode, I'm chatting to Ray Kennedy, a registered nurse and a certified holistic sex educator who runs the brilliant platform Positive Results. Ray, it's so awesome to speak to you. And I love the fact that social media gives me the opportunity to meet people from all over the world doing really amazing work. I mean, you're in Oregon. I'm in Cape Town. And it's so cool to connect with you, especially because this is a topic everybody wants to know more about, but too many people feel ashamed and embarrassed to ask about it. Yeah, very true. It affects 80% of the world. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. That statistic is always quite shocking for people when I share it, that the prevalence, particularly of herpes simplex virus one, we'll get into in a little bit, but you know, the fact that this virus affects 80% of the global population, and yet there is such a feeling of isolation and stigma associated to it, which, you know, we will jump into and talk about. But I think we can, if we can just, just, I I use the word or the term HSV. And I know that a lot of people won't know what that means. I've just spoken about herpes simplex virus. That's what HSV is. Herpes simplex virus one, but there's also herpes simplex virus two. Can we just break it down so that those listening can kind of understand a little bit about what it is we're talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note that there are eight herpes simplex viruses that affect humans, but we're so focused on the two that are kind of sexualized a little bit, right? Like um, chickenpox, shingles, mono, those are all part of the herpes family as well, but they're not as stigmatized because they're not tied to sex usually. So HSV-1 is the difference with the types. So HSV-1 is commonly cold sores. A lot of people will call them cold sores, but they are oral herpes. I think there's a big misconception that it's only HSV is only outbreaks around the mouth because it's not true. A lot of people have outbreaks and then don't realize that they're herpes or don't realize that they can transmit to the genitals. So from oral sex, you can absolutely transmit HSV one to the genitals. About one in two people live with oral herpes, but 67% of the global population has some type of HSV-1. And then HSV-2 is genital herpes, most commonly. They say that they can, it is transmittable to the mouth via oral sex, but there's like almost no reported cases. I rarely hear about it. Actually, I've never heard about it. I've just read about it in studies, but I've never met a single person in all these years I've done this work that have oral HSV-2. Not to say that it's not possible, but it's less likely. Um, And then about more than one in five people, the statistics kind of change depending on who you look at, but one in five or one in six folks live with genital herpes or HSV2, which is about 15% of the population now. So those are the ones that we most commonly think of when we think of herpes. Exactly. I really like that you spoke about the fact that actually there's not just one type of herpes or two types of herpes, but there are many different variations of the same virus. And I think that that's so important because you made that distinction between between herpes associated to sex and herpes not associated to sex, which I don't think chickenpox has the same type of stigma that like HSV2 has. And that is because of sex, which, 
you know, as a sexologist, that really frustrates me where it's shaming and stigmatizing a virus that exists in many different forms and that so many of us will, will have in our lifetime, will, will contract in our lifetime. But yet there isn't the same discussions that are happening around, you know, herpes simplex one or herpes simplex two, because they're not associated or they are associated to sex. Yeah, and it's interesting because even HSV-1 isn't as commonly stigmatized because so many people just call it cold sores. And, you know, oh, I had it when I was a kid. I got it from my aunt who kissed me. It's very harmless. But then all of a sudden when it transmits to the genitals, then it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, there's so much more shame associated to it. And, And why do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think... I could go in two different directions here. I think that the stigma around sexually transmitted infections comes from the stigma associated with sex. Our culture is very puritanical. You know, like when we were growing up, we had abstinence-based sex education. Like don't have sex until you're married. Um, You know, only have sex with one person. Very like hard to follow those guidelines, I think. But sex has always been sort of feared in our society because they don't want us having sex. And then if we contract an STI, like especially an incurable one, like herpes, then that's sort of like a moral failing. Like not only did we have sex, but we did the thing we weren't supposed to do. We either had unprotected sex or sex with multiple partners. Um, And then those sort of stereotypes and those misconceptions start to ring true for people who contract like, Oh, am I, the dirty, slutty person that is always, you know, represented in the media or that our abstinence-based sex educators told us we would be if we contracted or, you know, like there's just so many things that you can relate it back to. And then I think for, you know, vulva owners, I think the stigma is even worse because so much of our worth is tied to our bodies and our sexuality that when we contract an STI, suddenly we feel like we're damaged, um, that people won't want us, that the thing that made us valuable was taken from us. And now we have no value. I hear that so often with the clients I work with, um, particularly women, particularly younger women, it's, it almost feels like a death sentence to their identity, to who they are as career-driven, independent women who, you know, they view themselves as not being promiscuous. Again, there's the idea that promiscuity equals sexually transmitted infections. And it's such a, such a challenging narrative to try and break down because it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, a sexually transmitted infection such as herpes can be transmitted from one sexual encounter with one partner, even if you never have sex again in your life. Or it could be somebody who has had lots and lots and lots of sex. Just one time, somebody had a genital sore, an active genital sore, and transmission took place. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no guidelines that herpes follows. They don't really have a script that the virus is like, oh yeah, okay, you've been really promiscuous. So I think that we're going to attach ourselves to your body and to, you know, it doesn't work like that. And I think that the real challenge there, you know, in terms of the stigma that you've been speaking about, it's long-standing stigma. It's societal and culturally based, and. If we think about abstinence-only education programs, population groups who have abstinence-only sex education actually have the highest highest numbers of unwanted pregnancies. There is so much to be said about forbidding, making something forbidden, um, and how much we want to then, you know, don't tell the child not to stick a bean up its nose sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Something I I did just want to touch on, if I suppose I can just jump back to my first question to you. I think you mentioned something there about it being incurable. And I think it's important to point out for the listeners that you get two different types of sexually transmitted infections. You get a bacterial infection and you, such as chlamydia, and you get a, a sexually transmitted infection that's a viral infection, such as herpes simplex virus or HIV. And something like Chlamydia, which is a bacterial infection, can be treated with antibiotics, antibacterial, and something that can't be treated but can be managed is something like herpes simplex virus. So we spoke a little bit about, you know, cold sores or genital sores. If somebody's got cold sores or genital sores, it's obviously quite 
uncomfortable. It's obviously quite painful for that person, but it's obviously quite painfully emotionally as well. If you've got genital sores and you're feeling really ashamed and embarrassed because of all of that stigma associated to it, when it comes to sharing pleasure and your body with a partner. Absolutely. Recently, I just had an outbreak because I live with herpes type two. Um, I have for five years and I recently had an outbreak. It'd been 14 months since I had my last outbreak. And I was sort of feeling like, oh yeah, I've got this under control. And it was so funny because then when I had an outbreak, you go through sort of that, like, oh, what am I doing wrong? Um, You know, and even I, after all of this work that I've done, I still have to remind myself, like, this is just your body doing what it's supposed to do. Obviously you're tired, you're stressed or something is happening. And I'm always grateful when I have an outbreak because it's like my body telling me slow down. But then I, you know, I have a really supportive partner too. And, you know, it's not a deal breaker. Even when I have an outbreak, we can manage. Like, I don't want to have penetrative sex when I'm having a genital outbreak. No way, because you're right. It is uncomfortable. It is not fun. Um, but we can certainly come up with alternatives like outer course, like mutual masturbation. It doesn't have to be, you know, the end all, you know, I have done so much work around the shame and the stigma in my own body. Um, and it does kind of create this like body dysmorphia. You have this sort of like moment where you're like, how could this, my body do this to me? Like, I thought I had you know, it all figured out, like, you feel sort of betrayed by your own body, but also betrayed by the educators, your family members, everybody up until then, too, because I realized how much education I was lacking so much, you know, like, condoms don't fully protect you from sexually transmitted infections. Um, Herpes doesn't look a certain way for every person, you know, Well, and I'll talk about how I kind of got to a point where I rediscovered my sexuality after it was taken from me, or so I thought, because you kind of, when you go through a new diagnosis and so much is uncertain, there's not a lot of great education out there. And even when you go turn to the internet, it's scary. It's not very reassuring. And I think that's something that listeners should know is that there's better resources out there than the first five things that come up in your search engine. But that's the things that we turn to. We immediately go to Google and we're like, oh my God, I have genital herpes. Tell me everything I need to know. And the, the things that you're going to find in those basic searches are not going to be really reassuring. But when I was newly diagnosed, like I didn't know, can I touch myself? Will I transmit to other parts of my body? Um, I had so many questions like, is it guaranteed that all of my partners will contract? Um, you know, like is safer sex really safer sex? Like I had so many questions, but years and years of research and educating myself, I realized that yes, I herpes did not change my life. Um, yes. I have to be more open and honest with partners when we talk about our sexual health, but it was kind of like, shocking to me that we're not already doing that it was sort of like hindsight is 2020 right it's like why wasn't I asking my partners um the instance that happened when I did contract you know the sexual health discussion went something like I'm okay are you okay like I don't need a condom do you need a condom like that was that was it and we're sort of like let's do it without a condom and so like nobody really had any real conversation there and so I had to kind of do all of this learning on my own. And then the truths about herpes are very reassuring. I can have a normal sex life. Herpes gets much quieter over time. Um, So when you have less outbreaks and you really don't have to worry as often, you know, like whether or not you should be having sex or what, but I had to do a lot of getting okay with myself before I could start opening up to other people because having that conversation is really hard when I don't have answers to their questions or I don't feel confident or I don't want to touch my own body. Why would somebody else want to touch my body or how could I feel comfortable with them touching my body? So I did a lot of time researching and masturbating and learning my outbreak symptoms. That's something I think people take for granted is that the herpes simplex virus lives in our spinal column in the nervous system, and it's often triggered by stress. So say you're having a really stressful time, or you were recently injured, like you broke a bone, or you were 
really sick. Um, maybe you got too much sun, like just think of anything that might put your body under stress that could be a potential trigger. And so just learning that from experience, not really because, you know, WebMD is not telling me like, maybe you should have a mindfulness practice. Maybe your outbreaks would calm down if you weren't so stressed about having outbreaks. These are just things that happened over time. And now I'm comfortably living with herpes. I rarely have outbreaks and my sex life is actually better than it's ever been before herpes. Hmm. I, I, I really get the sense of empowerment through, through your experience, actually, that you, you, you really started in a place of feeling disempowered by this thing that is affecting you. And you've moved through that, through education, through knowledge, through almost ownership of your experience, all the way through to empowerment. And I think that the, the biggest thing for me was you speaking about you educating yourself. You can't, unfortunately, we, we can't rely on other people to give us adequate education because, I mean, you're sitting in the States and not in the, in the U.S., it's, it's actually quite appalling how few states have to give accurate medical information when it comes to sex education. It's not the problem that we have in South Africa, but South African sex education is still not comprehensive enough. And it's still risk-focused, um, safety-focused, consent-focused, which is all important, but it skips over how to have conversations about things like this or that sex should be pleasurable for both partners or masturbation. Anyway, that's a whole other episode. Um, totally. There's so much to be said about you educating yourself. And I like that you said, you know, Google can only, can only educate you so far. Don't just trust the first five pages you find on Google. And I guess that's how I found you was the educational platform you are putting out, the content you're putting out that's sex positive around this specific topic, educating people around it. And it's the most wonderful thing that actually, if I think that, you know, the population group who's on Instagram obviously is of all ages, but you've got more and more and more youngsters wanting to get on Instagram or wanting to get on TikTok. I'm, I'm not on TikTok. I'm trying to avoid social media, but let's just stick with Instagram for the moment. You know, wanting to get onto social media and finally getting on it and actually being able to access fantastic sex positive content like yours around a topic that we don't get information about. And Unfortunately, for most young people, their first their first source of visually engaging in what sex is is pornography. You're never going to see a genital sore on pornography. It's just not going to happen. You're also going to see a very false representation of what real sex looks like. You're never going to see couples negotiating uh, sex. You're never going to see couples negotiating consent and having a conversation about one partner, you know, disclosing to their partner about the fact that they have something like herpes. None of that, we're, we're not given the script. We're not given the instruction manual for any of that. So I can only imagine that having to navigate that on your own was daunting as anything. But as I said, it's been incredibly empowering for you in the process. Yeah, well, I mean, like I had two choices. I had a, you know, I could suffer my whole life and be a victim and give up, or I could figure out a way to accept my diagnosis and keep living. And as I was going through this, you know, I'm a nurse too. So I know how to find the medical research. And I don't know that everybody does. Um, I was like, shocked that I was a nurse, I had gone through, you know, medical training. And I didn't know any of this stuff. And so you really, you have to educate yourself, because I think a lot of us take for granted that, or maybe not take for granted, but I think a lot of us don't stop and question the messages we see in the media. Like you were mentioning porn, a lot of mainstream porn, you don't see them having conversations about sexual health. You definitely don't see a lot of barrier methods even used. Um, like I think the statistic is 3% of heterosexual pornography features condoms, external condoms, and wow. even less feature internal condoms or dental dams. And so, you know, like if we know that there's this early access to porn and this is how youngsters are getting educated, why are we not weaving more of this into the, the media? Because I think the message is that it's not sexy, that we should have this unspoken attraction to people that we should just know. And then we're already thinking in the back of our head that, you know, STIs can't happen to us. That happens to other people. That happens to the people that are the stereotypes, the sluts, the dirty people. So it's like, it's a really tangled mess that, 
I found myself in the middle of and I just had to kind of crawl out of, but that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to spread the awareness. And it's so hard to do because not a lot of people openly talk about herpes because the shame is so bad. And so I've been doing this work for years and it's a slow and steady process because nobody wants to follow me on Instagram because what if people look through their friends and find a page that might suggest they have an STI and, you know, the stigma and the shame runs deep. Um, And we definitely don't have anything in our culture or our society to set people up for support, even doctors in our society you know, medical providers are not required to have much sexual education. I think doctors are required to have three hours of sexual education in their entire programming. But, you know, when I was diagnosed, I was misdiagnosed. Uh, When they called me, they gave me results on a voicemail. Nobody gave me any education. Nobody gave me any resources. You know, like I felt like my world was ending, but then medical providers, they see people have herpes all the time. They're kind of jaded. They don't think it's the end of the world because really it doesn't affect us a whole lot medically other than every now and then we have a inconvenient outbreak, but it's just wild to me because even the doctors out there who are testing folks, they are either ordering the wrong test. They're not including herpes in STI panels. um, And sometimes they don't even know how to read the results that they did order the right test. So it's just like, once you contract herpes, you find yourself kind of feeling isolated and alone. And then those, the stuff you do find online isn't exactly helpful either. So it's, it's problematic. And it's a, a long, long road ahead of us, I think, unfortunately, but we are making some progress. I think with everything to do with sex, there's a long road ahead of us. Um, We've made a lot of a lot of headway with social media has been fantastic as a platform and access to YouTube and online courses and content. We've made a lot of headway, but still there's so, there's so much. It's such a heavy, heavy laden space. There's so much work that still needs to be done. And that's why, again, I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you because everything that you've just said, I've heard from so many clients in the years that I've been practicing and particularly women, you know, men, I I think in all the time that I've been practicing the last 10 years, there've probably been like a couple of guys that I've, I've consulted with around these concerns. There's a lot more shame, um, uh, covert shame among men, whereas women will come and speak to me or they get referred to me to process the trauma of, of finding out that they have herpes And there's overt shame there in the room, but we're actually able to process it. And and the more that we express ourselves, the less power that shame has over us. The more we talk about it, the less that that shame can hold on to us. And I think that that's the same as what happens with a partner. Now, you mentioned having this conversation. So many people who perhaps are single, who don't have a long-term partner that they're having sex with, who have to constantly, I don't know, constantly battle with the thoughts of should I, shouldn't I, should I tell them, shouldn't I tell them, how do I tell them, if I tell them, what will they do, how, do they, how will they react? There's so much anxiety there now that's coupling with that shame. So how do we go about helping people navigate that? Well, when you said should I or should I, shouldn't I tell them, always, always disclose, because not all of us were given the choice. Um, like Obviously, you heard what my conversation looked like. Either my partner didn't get tested or withheld their disclosure from me. And so, you know, if we had had a deeper conversation, maybe I could have teased some of that information out. Like, when was the last time you were tested? What were you tested for? But I I didn't have that language or that knowledge yet. So what I think needs to be done is that we need to be normalizing these sexual health discussions. I work closely with my own gynecologist and primary care physician. Her name is Eveline Dacker, and she created the STARS model. If you go to maketimeforthetalk.com, it is an acronym that walks you through how to have these sexual health discussions. So like STI testing, turn-ons and turn-offs, avoidances, relationship expectations, and safer sex practices. Those are things that we should be always talking about with partners before we engage in sex if we're really trying to um, advocate for our sexual health and our partner's sexual health. And then it's not, we're not putting so much pressure on disclosing. 
when we disclose, it's not like, I think a lot of the time it feels like we're telling a secret because it feels like a secret because we're probably keeping it from a lot of people because of that shame, but it shouldn't be a secret. It is a sharing of information and that information your partner needs to know to make an informed decision, to give informed consent to have sex with you. So if you're not telling a partner that you live with herpes um, and you have sex with them, that's non-consensual sex. It's not ethical. Um, because if there's ever a potential of your partner for contracting, they should have a, the decision if they want to proceed or not. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be this big, serious question either. It can just be like, when was the last time you were tested? I was tested back in April of last year and I tested positive for this, that, and the other, and I should, I'm probably due for another one. How about you? Like, it doesn't need to be this, like, I need to tell you something. It's, it's been on my mind for so long. You're, you're probably going to freak out. Like there, see the difference in those two conversations. Like, how is your partner going to respond? So I always say just approach it casually. And a lot of the times like I've been talking openly about sex for a while now but it's not easy for a lot of people so I always suggest like practicing with friends write it in your journal come up with a spiel that feels good for you and use it all the time save it in your notes text it to your partners get really good at it um, and it also kind of will save you from the burnout of having to disclose and having to educate over and over again. It's like, here's what you need to know. Here are some good resources, educate yourself and then let me know. Um, but yeah, I think there is a lot of pressure around disclosing because it does feel like a big secret and rejection is so scary, but um, sexual partners can reject you for a number of other things. There are many other deal breakers like cigarette smoking is a deal breaker for me more so than an STI is. So I think the stories that we tell ourselves in our heads about how people are going to respond to our disclosure are almost always worse than the, the reality. So every time I've ever disclosed to somebody, I've had a, either a really positive reaction, a lot of gratitude for my honesty, or a sharing of their own, like, I don't want to say secret again, but something they didn't tell anybody else before. Like there's this vulnerability like when I lower my walls and other people feel safe to lower theirs. so it's almost like I'm setting the standard and it's been improving all of my relationships instead of severing them so 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 much of what you've just shared has given me like all the right feels because you've spoken about consent and the need to disclose and I was just actually thinking while you were sharing that you wouldn't go on a date with somebody when you knew you had COVID you would not go on the date knowing you had COVID, rocking up at the date, looking forward to sitting in close proximity to this person, maybe kissing at the end of it, maybe spending a night together. You wouldn't do that. So why do you do that with something like um, herpes? Why do you go in and not disclose this to the person? And I understand you're not going to do that on a first date, really. That's not going to be your opening line. But there needs to be a shift from disempowerment to empowering yourself in your experience. And what you spoke about was, again, quite bringing up an interesting thought for me. You could actually, I spoke about earlier not having scripts, but you could actually have a little script, a little kind of couple of sentences that you've, you've come to, you've practiced with your friends, that you say to your partners, I need to let you know about this. And you probably don't know much about it. So if you want to learn more about it, please go here. Because I think negative responses from potential partners comes from a place of complete misinformation and miseducation and the stigma around sex that we have. And then you also said something that I tell my clients all the time. 90% of the time, it's far worse in your head than it is in reality. We make it into this very, very big thing. I loved the line you used. I use it all the time. The story that we tell ourselves is going to be, it's going to be horrendous. They're going to reject me. Sex is the most vulnerable space that we can be in. Physically, we're naked. Emotionally, we have to let go. So of course, rejection, it's a rife environment for rejection to take place. And it's the place that it can hurt the most. So much of what you've just said, I hope, is going to normalize people's anxiety, but actually give them 
a little bit of a skill or, or a skill that they can practice that, that they can use when they're with a partner, but also emphasizing the point that they need to use that skill. You cannot just go into a sexual relationship thinking, oh, well, I think it will be fine. I don't seem to have an outbreak at the moment. It is it's okay. Like I can just get away with it because as you said, you wish you'd had that longer conversation and actually knew what it was that was going on if it was something that that person also knew. So there was full disclosure from both parties that would have been actually far more empowering as conversations go. I seem like I'm using that word a lot this evening. I love it because I do like empowerment is exactly what my mission was. It's like, how can we empower women, especially women, vulva owners who who live with it because those are seemingly the ones that suffer the most. Um, what I really liked was that you were talking about the partner's response and how it comes from a lack of education. And I've noticed that myself and I've had people, I mentioned the burnout because people will reach out to me because I'm always like, yay, now you're an educator. Now you can go out and educate folks on herpes. And after a while, like I'm an educator by nature. Like I just love it. I was born and bred to do it. I mean, I used to play school for fun when I was a kid, but not everybody wants to educate all the time and it gets old. It's sort of like teaching people pronouns. It's like you get burnout after a while when people misgender you constantly. And when you're always presented with partners who don't know anything, it, it can be a big turnoff. It's just like, ugh here we go again. I've got to educate another person about herpes. So I created a resource for these people. It's called the partner's guide and it's a PDF file you can send to partners. And I wanted it to include everything that I thought could help dismantle the stigma. So it's got herpes 101 with all the information I could have thought of about herpes, transmission, safer sex. But then I go into like, it's, it's for partners. So how to respond, how to make an informed decision, what to say, like, do you even know your herpes status? Um, one huge misconception is um, comprehensive STI panels. So when you go to the doctor and you say, I want to get tested for STIs, test me for everything. The chances are that they're testing you for everything is slim. You're probably getting tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia. If they're drawing blood, maybe HIV and syphilis, but almost never, I hate using always and nevers, but I mean, this is true. Always, almost never are people ordering herpes if you're asymptomatic. And one of the most common symptoms of herpes is no symptom at all. So it's estimated, I think about 87% of people who live with herpes don't even know they have it. And so it's interesting when you think about that number, how many people you could be disclosing to who are rejecting you for herpes, who could be living with herpes themselves and not even realize it. And so that, again, it comes back to that lack of education. There's just so much information out there that we aren't aware of. Your experiences are happening here in South Africa too. I've been for multiple um, STI screenings in my lifetime. I'm, you know, it's, it's not just got to do with my job. I've always been that kind of person. And I've, I've asked that of partners in the past as well. And it's again, you know, I would like to do an STI screening. Okay, one, two, tick, done, move on. And you get the results for, as you said, chlamydia and gonorrhea. And in South Africa, HIV, we are encouraged to go annually for HIV tests and so on. Um, so it's, it's not comprehensive. And there really needs to be an assertiveness that comes from us to our healthcare providers, because as we were speaking about earlier, they are not sufficiently educated as well. And just because you don't have symptoms doesn't mean you don't have the virus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that shocks people also is that you can have an outbreak, as you've said, you haven't had in a really long time, and then it seems like it just completely goes away. So the misinformation around what it means to have a sexually transmitted infection that's a viral infection that doesn't really leave you versus a, a sexually transmitted infection that's bacterial that can be treated, there's a lot of misinformation around there as well. But let's let's jump into some of the other myths that we need to debunk. There's so many. There are so many. So we'll we'll try and use our time, comp you know, comprehensively and cohesively. But we we could probably talk a long time about the myths that are perpetuated about herpes. Yeah, some of the ones that I include in my guide um, was that dirty people and sluts are the only ones that get it. But we already talked about how herpes does not discriminate. No STI discriminates. If you're being sexually active with partners, 
you're at risk for contracting an STI. Um, and that's everybody with or without condoms. So that's another um, common misconception is that wearing condoms every time protects you. Well, if you think about the surface area that a condom covers, it's usually like the shaft of a penis or a dildo or, you know, the vaginal canal or the anal canal. But what about the skin around those areas? Because herpes is transmitted skin to skin and so is HPV. And so people are thinking, well, I wear condoms every time I should be good. I'm like, again, that's a misconception. The one we talked about that it's included in STI panels, big one. Um, there's also misconceptions on social media that there is a herpes cure. There are Instagram pages out there who prey on the vulnerability and the stigma. Um, and they will find people who follow herpes accounts like mine. They'll troll our friends list and they'll, you know, thank God, doctor so-and-so saved my life with this herbal cure. And people are so desperate to cure herpes and the shame and stigma that come with it that they'll spend thousands of dollars on this herbal cure or some program that's not going to work because there is no known cure for HSV, as we know. What else is there? That it's always symptomatic. That if I have genital herpes, that must mean that I always have outbreaks, that it's obvious that I have outbreaks. But really, like I said, I went almost, I went more than a whole year without any symptoms. And, you know, people think, oh, you have genital herpes, you must always be so uncomfortable. Like, how do you have sex? Uh, another one is that you can't have babies. Yeah, I, um, I know many, many women that live with genital herpes that have successfully delivered children vaginally. I actually have not met one that I've talked to face to face or on social media that have had to have a cesarean um, delivery like a c-section. But that is the option. So if you are herpes positive genitally, and you are pregnant, your provider will likely push you on prophylactic antivirals several weeks or a couple months before delivery. Um, and that's just to kind of help prevent any symptoms that might occur. If you were to deliver and you were having an outbreak, they wouldn't let you have a vaginal birth because if you were to deliver the baby and you were having an active outbreak, there is some potential risk that the baby can get it in their, um, their mucous membrane. So in their eyes or their mouth or their, their throat. Um, so, and that can potentially lead to even further complications, but the number of times that that happens is pretty low. Um, and C-sections happen all the time too, for many reasons. So there's maybe some shame and guilt around like, Oh, I wasn't able to give the vaginal birth of my dreams, but Hey, you've got a healthy baby and you know, it worked out, but it's very possible and it happens all the time. And I think that that's a big misconception. I'm not even sure where people get that from. Maybe it's just, um, I, I've never even read any literature that says that you can't deliver a baby. Um, I, I think there's help. something along the lines of, of when you're falling pregnant and, you know, in preparation for birth plans and things like that. Obviously, there, there need to be certain tests done and tests run. And this is one of the things that has to happen. So as to ensure the, the best care is given to the mother and the child. It's, it's crazy. It makes me again think like before you give birth, you need to have a COVID test at the moment. It's just before you go into hospital and go into labor. It's the same thing. We just need to make a uh, make sure it's something that we're aware of so that we can plan for so that everybody involved is ensuring the best care for the mother and the baby. But as you said, I also don't know anybody who hasn't been able to have a natural vaginal birth when they have wanted one in South Africa. Women are given a choice what they want, unless obviously there's an emergency reason for a cesarean. But I don't know any woman who has had to have a cesarean section due to the herpes virus. I've never come across a woman in my clinical practice that's had that experience. And again, in the literature, we don't see we we don't see that popping up very often. It's it's I think it's far more of an anxiety. Again, much worse in our heads than it is in reality. Whereas in the process of, of the birth plan, it's just one of those things we need to find out about and make provisions for if need be sort of thing. Yeah, I love that. Again, we're coming back to like, let's inform everybody so that we can make the best decision possible for our health. Um, some other common ones. I would say that herpes is a deal breaker. Not always. 
not for everybody. There are educated folks out there. Um, a lot of people, I have a, a highlight on my Instagram page that's entitled disclosures. And it's just screenshots of people who have shared their disclosure stories with me and how many times people are like, oh, I've dated somebody with herpes before. No big deal. Or I know somebody with herpes. I totally understand. Or I have herpes too. It happens all the time. Um, and people think that uh, it's going to be a deal breaker and run. It might be a deal breaker for some, like we talked about, but deal breakers are, there are many deal breakers out there. There, there are. And again, I think that comes back to the, the person hearing the disclosure. It comes back to their misinformation and misunderstanding. Because if you're judging somebody for having herpes, in my eyes, that says far more about you being the judger than it does about the person making that disclosure. It is the most courageous thing, in my opinion, to actually be assertive with your own sexual health and your own sexual needs, to be able to say, this is who I am and this is what you need to know about this virus and it's your decision then what you want to do. I would like to be with you. It's the most courageous thing. So while it's obviously incredibly difficult to be rejected by a partner, it says far more about the person who's hearing that disclosure than it does about the person who's disclosing. Absolutely. And I think that you can absolutely pass on a partner who has herpes, but you don't have to be an asshole about it. You know, like say, thank you. Say that you're not ready to explore that level of intimacy with a partner. Um, you know, and say like, I thank you for sharing because you didn't have to. You, I don't want there to be this like pressure that just because somebody discloses a status to you that you have to like, you feel like you must be with them because again, you get to make an informed decision about your sexual health, but there does need to be like, before you make a decision, make sure you're reading the information, like make a truly informed decision. Because if you're making a decision based on the herpes jokes you see in the media, it's not an informed decision. No, it's not. I think, I think this might be my last one I have, but it is that transmitting to a partner is also some sort of like moral failing that so like if you have disclosed to a partner and they have agreed to proceed sexually with you and they do contract eventually it is not your fault because this is why I stress that it's so important to have those discussions and make sure that your partner is fully aware because once you disclose your status you're not responsible for their sexual health. They have all of the information they need and now they are responsible for their sexual health. Yes, it's a collaboration and yes, it's something you can negotiate and navigate together. But if they contract herpes after you've disclosed all of the information to them, it's not your fault. You know, they took on that risk knowingly and I don't want folks to feel guilty about that. I know it's easier said than done, but it happens all the time and it shouldn't. I think that that is probably the most powerful thing that you you could share because I've heard that a lot. And there is so much permission in what you've just said. It, you, it is not your fault. You, you crossed all the T's, you dotted all the I's, you were really responsible, you were assertive with your own sexual needs and your own sexual health. And it was not your decision to then follow through with that sexual relationship once the, your partner knew that information or had that information. It was their decision. So carrying the burden of them later, you know, contracting herpes, how does that help? How does that help at all? If anything, that's only going to make, I think, the dynamic between you even more difficult. Can you be there to help your partner on the journey that you've already taken? Can you guide them and be there for them and ask them what it is that they need and how it is that you can help rather than holding on to that guilt? Again, a lot easier said than it, it is done. It's, it's almost, I think, it's almost impossible not to feel some sort of guilt, but it's not going to be helpful to hold on to that guilt, but rather use the emotional distress that's coming up for both of you to move forward from it together and and be empowered together in it rather than holding you back yeah and if you set it up in the beginning of your relationship by having an open and honest and vulnerable discussion about sex in the first place you've already set the stage for these sort of discussions and collaborations with your sexual partners moving forward so 
you know, like, let's take all this guesswork and assumptions out of sex. And let's start coming from this really empowered place of this is what I know about myself. This is what I would like to know about you. And here are my boundaries. If you're not willing to go get tested, if you're not willing to wear a condom, if you're not willing to X, Y, and Z with me, then I have other partners I can visit. You know, like you don't, I don't have to wait around for you. And I think that's another thing is like people who live with herpes, they don't know their worth because they're still struggling with that. And so a lot of the times they find themselves in these relationships with people that don't deserve them because they're like, well, they accepted me for my status. And so like, I'm just lucky to have a partner at all, you know, like use it as a tool of empowerment, use it to weed out the people in your life who don't deserve you. Um, use it as a source of education, tell your friends, tell your family, because chances are, if you educate others around you, you're going to find people who are going to be in the same situation as you. And then you're not going to feel so alone. And I think that that is so, so, so important. And I wanted to kind of support what you've just said with, with research that shows us that couples who talk openly about sex in their relationship are actually more sexually satisfied because they can express their concerns. They can express their needs. They don't feel shame in bringing up a topic that is so shame-filled they are able to openly and honestly discuss a very, very important part of the, the thing that makes them a couple or that makes them partners. So there's so much power in the, in the ability to communicate about our sex lives. And that doesn't just mean the type of pleasure you like and how you like to be turned on, but it also means the, the challenges you might face or the negotiations that you might have to have around this topic. Out of interest, you know, what was it like to start this platform on Instagram? Because that, for me, is hugely courageous, really courageous. I wasn't so brave in the beginning. It was, like, fully anonymous. Like, nobody saw my face. Um, I was mostly posting, like, words of affirmation just to let people know that, like, I'm here. I have herpes, too, if you want to talk about it. But it was, like, Herpes Awareness Day in October of, what was that, 2017? that I like a, a group of folks on there on social media were like, we're going to stand up and talk about our experience with herpes. And that was the day that I was like, okay, I'm going to show my face. And I had such amazing feedback and support when I did that, that it was encouraging me to keep being transparent, to keep being vulnerable because it helped other people. You know, like I wasn't doing anybody any favors by being anonymous because I was just perpetuating the shame too. You know, like I, I'm talking about normalizing herpes, but I don't want to tell anybody I have herpes. Like that doesn't work. So I knew that if I had to really push the message that I was trying to push, that I had to be really transparent and open and honest. And at first it was, probably a little more self-serving. I was looking to heal and I was looking for people. I had a really supportive community, but none of which lived with herpes and, or that were telling me they lived with herpes statistically, someone out there was, but I felt very much alone and I wanted people who had similar experiences or could relate to me. And so that's why I created it. And the more steam I got and uh, momentum that built, I realized that I had healed and that now I was helping others heal. And um, I realized that I couldn't stop at that point now. Like I'm fully committed. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere because this work is so important. And people tell me all the time, like if it weren't for you and your resources, I don't know where I would be. And that's exactly why I'm doing it. And that, that's exactly why you should keep doing it. In the time that you've, you've been doing this work that you put your face to this platform since you've you know gone through your own journey what has been the thing that has surprised you the most about it really debunking the stigma like those stories I told myself that people were going to react that people were going to care or feel differently about me um, I'm still unlearning all of that like recently I'm very open about this on my herpes page but on my public page I'm not so open about it you know like I have no shame around living with herpes, but I, I want to be clear that you don't have to tell everybody you have herpes. This is something that you get to pick and choose. Um, unless you're having sex with them, then yes, you have to tell them. But, you know, like, I don't need to tell my dad that I live with genital herpes. He's never at risk for contracting. And that's just something I don't feel comfortable talking to my dad about. Same goes with like, 
cousins or coworkers or people that it really, it doesn't, they don't need to know. Um, recently I did start sharing on my public page because I'm, I'm moving through that next level of like dismantling stigma. I want to, I want to normalize it in my social circles. Um, but I, when I did do that, I was like, okay, like I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I told my partner, I told my friends, like, I'm going to finally pull off the bandaid. I'm ready. And nobody cared. Nobody reacted. (laughs) Nobody gave two shits. And I was like, see what I mean? Like you just tell yourself this story, like, oh, here I go. Another public disclosure. What's going to happen? Nothing happened. Nothing changed. I'm still Ray. Nobody feels any differently about me. Mm, except that actually, I, I think that that might not be 100% true. I'm sure there is an immense sense of pride from the people who know you and those who engage with you feel an immense sense of admiration for your courage and actually owning your experience and saying there is nothing wrong with this. This is just one of the parts of being human and one of the parts of sex. It's a part of it. It's not the whole of it. And it's not all of who I am. It's just a part of who I am. I think that there's really, I don't know, there's really a lot more, obviously, so much more that we have to do to continue to dismantle, debunk, change the narrative of and so on. But the one thing that I can say is that seeing the awesome content you put out on social media means that I'm able to refer one of my clients, I mean, here in South Africa to you for her to see actually on a really kind of safe in a really safe way on a social media platform that helps her to normalize her experience that helps her to feel a little bit more empowered in her own experience so you've given us such amazing resources and I'm going to link them in the show notes people should follow you obviously on social media and I'll again tag you and link you in the show notes and I'm just I'm really grateful for your time this morning Ray thank you for sharing your story and for actually helping to completely normalize a topic that we will continue to work to normalize well thanks so much for having me I'm always happy to talk about herpes and do anything I can to normalize it so thanks so much for your time and for having me here this episode was sponsored by Desire. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FORAFRIEND. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.